2: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times, I'm Matt Chorley. This week's podcast is dedicated to from the regions who post a review on iTunes and would like more from outside the Westminster bubble. Good news on that, we're hosting a live debate on April the 26th in Birmingham with Matthew Paris plus the two front runners to be West Midlands Mayor, Labour's Sean Simon and Conservative Andy Street. Go online at mytimesplus.com uh, for details on that. Also, from the same review on iTunes, they suggested that my morning email briefing every day was too much and they'd rather have a Friday roundup to be read at leisure at the end of the day with a glass of wine in hand, which sounds lovely were it not doing me out of a job. If you can cope with reading about politics every morning, sign up to my Red Box email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box, uh, where you'll also find details every morning in the email about that debate in Birmingham. Plus, before we get going, if you happen to want to vote for us in the British Podcast Awards, do go online to www.britishpodcastawards.com and search for Times Red Box and vote for us there. So, to this week, Theresa May is in vogue, the Lib Dems are in Clover and Donald Trump is still in power. Joining me to go behind the headlines are Times columnist Rachel Sylvester, award winner again at the recent British Press Awards. Reporter Grant Tucker takes a look at the Theresa May's appearance in Vogue. But we start with Giles Rattel, leader writer and former Washington correspondent who thinks Donald Trump's opponents should not get too excited.
3: Donald Trump is embarrassing more and more Americans. According to Gallup, 55% of them disapproved of his performance as of Sunday. This does not, however, mean his presidency will fail, much less collapse by the weekend. As long as he stands for tax cuts, deficit spending and deregulation at home, the free world is stuck with him. So, Giles, we keep hearing about
2: the the opponents of Trump who keep hoping that something will turn up. You know, this is going to be the smoking gun which is going to bring him down. He'll have to be. He's going to have to go. Um, We've seen with the FBI this week, uh, they're investigating both the uh, links with the Trump's links with the Kremlin and what happened during the election campaign, while rubbishing the idea that Obama was wiretapping it. But none of this seems to be sticking. Is that your...
3: That, that's clear at, at the yeah. moment. Part of that is that Comey and Admiral Rogers of the National Security Agency on day one of the hearing were very careful to say nothing specific beyond confirming those two points. Um, yes, we're investigating, and no, he, he wasn't wiretapped. Uh, which I suppose is what one would expect since investigations are continuing the the worry for liberals the world over is that they might actually uh, uncover a smoking gun a a concrete uh, piece of evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence during the uh, election campaign uh, and everyone would yawn yeah. Because we've had so much that seems like that already, and he's so unconventional already, and uh, most worryingly of all, we're used to him lying.
2: Yeah, so, it does, so nothing sticks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rachel, what do you make of this? Is there, is there uh, a point where he might think he needs to do something about his disapproval ratings or do he sort of wears them as a badge of pride so it doesn't
4: yeah i think even giles, that doesn't matter giles is right he's playing politics by different rules so uh i think somebody said during the presidential campaign he you know we're bringing fact checkers to a culture war and the very things that the liberals hate are the things that his supporters like he's tells it as it is, he doesn't, you know, kowtow to the liberal mainstream media, you know, he stands up for the little guy. And I think that a lot of the people who voted for him still probably back him on those grounds Uh, and in a way then what you say who you talk to during your campaign that's all that's that's mainstream normal political rules and it sort of doesn't matter but I think in terms of the world it does does matter in real life it does matter so I don't think he cares but um, for the stability if you like global stability it is important whether what happened what really took place you know who really said what to who and and the truth
2: Right, are you still gripped by the Trump soap opera? No,
5: I'm completely fed up of it by now. Um, And (laughs) the interesting thing with Trump is all he cares about is ratings, but it's TV ratings, not approval ratings. And I think it's going to get to the point where journalists are going to be so bored of it, including TV journalists, where they will start to focus on different things. And maybe it's then that he'll change and go for a different strategy.
4: Because obviously what he really wants is attention. So he's got to be tweeting endlessly, even through the evidence session from Comey. He was sort of tweeting his comments live. And so it's this sort of like the needy child jumping up and up and down saying, look at me, look at me. So if people stop looking, that what will really freak him out.
2: And it's um, it's a sort of slightly lazy comparison. But the, but the comparison with Jeremy Corbyn, who's tried to do the you – know, who's made pretty – Dreadful attempts to try to ape the sort of Donald Trump way of doing politics. But the real killer for Corbyn recently has been that Labour MPs have stopped publicly criticising him because he doesn't know what to do. Because if you define constant, if your if your entire existence is defined against your opponents, if your he, opponents yeah. if your <laughs> opponents stop criticising you. Corbyn has, Corbyn's been completely at a loss. His, and it, his identity sinister.
4: was as the victim, wasn't he, of yeah. evil Blairite attacks, whereas if the evil Blairite attacks aren't happening, he has no identity. He's sort of a, a black hole of hunger, as you wrote, Matt, the other day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's
2: completely obsessed with food, which is about the only thing that I think I've got in common with him. Um, Giles, you were in America for the first two years of the Obama administration. It, it just seems a world away from... That You know, when we'd have focused on the first hundred days and laying mm. out a policy platform, I mean it, it doesn't even seem like he's got a plan for the next hundred hours, Donald Trump.
3: Well, that brings us back to where we started. Actually, the uh, congressional Republicans who are staying a bit quiet hope he has. And you can, you can make the case that behind all the sound and fury of the t- Twitter storm, there are these three things that he's promised to do and hasn't yet uh changed his mind on. One is to spend a huge amount of money on infrastructure and defense. Uh, the other is to cut corporate tax rates by more than half from 35 to 17 percent. Uh, and what's the third? The the third is to is to deregulate the whole federal bureaucracy so that for every new regulation you scrap two, never mind whether the two that you scrap were useful for anything. Now uh, most of those were Republican shibboleths, have been for decades. And uh, the thinking on the Hill is if we can make him stick to any of them, it will be worth it, even though most of them are doing it with their uh, fingers over their um, with their over their noses. Um, but you, you're right that that is the only uh, conventional politics happening at the moment is congressional Republicans hoping to get some policy advancement out of this man,
4: and also isn't that contradictory with Trump's support base? So the people who voted for him in the Rust Belt, etc., they're not going to benefit from all these reforms, are they? It's going to be the sort of wealthy and That's absolute, wealthy businesses. Absolutely so true. there's a sort of contra- internal contradiction. Though. This
3: kind of public spending ends up in private pockets. It's absolutely true. It goes to goes to the private sector. Well, Trump would say though that it's
2: people in those Rust Belt places who get the jobs to do the building, which is being paid for. You know. Ultimately, if he can point to lots of jobs being created by that, that that fits the Trump narrative, doesn't it?
3: Yes, uh, but it's only only a narrative. Um, One of the interesting things that's happening in in corporate America is everyone is advertising their hiring policies uh, uh, as – to, to carry favour with the administration, even though they're very similar to the hiring policies that would have happened anyway and have been happening for the last eight years of continuous job growth.
2: Yeah, Walmart opening some new stores is not a new phenomenon, right. which is only happening un- under Trump, but it gets bound up in this idea that it's all thanks to this new era of of Trump. Um, Rachel, what, what's your take on the Theresa May-Donald Trump? We'll come on to Theresa May um, later, but the, the sort of May-Trump uh, axis, and there was a... She was the first one to go to the White House. Boris Johnson, we think, is going to Washington to meet Steve Bannon. Uh, How are those relations now, do you think?
4: I think there's such an interesting contrast between Angela Merkel and Theresa May and their attitude to Donald Trump. And Theresa May was sort of straight in there, craven, you know, hand holding, loving, um, very supportive. Angela Merkel much more sceptical. That was there was that amazing photograph of her looking at askance at him um, as he said something about you know both their phones being hacked, was that effect. Um, and it, I think she, Theresa May may end up wishing she'd been a little bit more sceptical, just because he's such a loose cannon um, and she could end up getting dragged into all kinds of rows that she just shouldn't have ever been that close to
2: and we hear that the the state visits now back to October it was supposed to be June back to October we could easily see that slipping into next year couldn't we
4: I don't know. They, I mean, they gave a pretty clear commitment it was going to be this year, didn't they? Yeah. So it would that would definitely then be seen as a snub, although it, the Queen has a very, very busy diary, I'm sure. Uh,
5: but <laughs> but May, like Merkel, did come back with an exemption on the Muslim ban uh, and came back with uh, the, the first foundations of a trade deal. What did Merkel come back with?
4: It's true. And she like- did
2: also extracted, for what it was worth, the commitment to uh, NATO, which...
4: Up until I think that the point, dangerous. she's just she's being naive about the trade yeah. deal the trade deal will be entirely on Donald Trump's terms if it happens at all um you know little britain after brexit is not going to be top front of the queue for an american trade deal
2: Well we could be at the front of a queue but the door is shut that's yeah. the that's the problem you know they're just other, other
4: well the co- door will be opened on their terms you know according to their you know regulations um, and that could cause us problems with other countries including the eu
1: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
2: Okay, well, I'm sure we'll come back to Donald Trump um, in the weeks to come, but let's move on now to uh, politics closer to home. And, Rachel...
4: The Lib Dems have nine MPs and a brand problem, but as the voice of the Remain voting 48% after the EU referendum, they've already won a by-election and are picking up council seats all over the country. Labour donors are defecting to them and they've doubled their membership since June the 23rd. There's a new Liberal backlash against the populist surge and Tim Farron's party will benefit. Now,
2: Mitchell, you've written about this in your column for The Times this week. Uh, that part of me... Uh, thinks that I should find it amusing that Tim Fowler is supposed to be the great white hope of British <laughs> politics. But, in the absence of anyone else, um, we should probably take it seriously. And actually, the case that you then built in your column um, was quite compelling. Not only have they won those um, uh, the by-election, but picking up, you know, was it 34 council seats?
4: 34 council seats.
2: Far more than any other um, party has managed. Uh, but also, what was interesting was the the donations in the last quarter of last year, they, more, they raised more money than the Labour Party. So, Big, na- big name donors. I'm told and that it,
4: even in the last few weeks, a big uh, a Labour donor from the Blair years has given to the Lib Dems. I um, I wasn't told the name, but they're in talks with quite a few others. So I think you're seeing this switch of centrist, progressive, or you know, centre-left people. Thinking, giving up on Labour and deciding that the Lib Dems, you know, who are absolutely unambiguously pro European, uh, the only kind of clearly pro European party, national party, um, and uh, they're seen now as the sort of potential way forward. I think it's interesting there's also sort of wider backlash, liberal backlash, if you like. You see Osborne getting the standard, Geert Wilders being defeated in Holland, um, You know, even Trump with his um, travel ban being blocked by the courts again. And There's a sense that things went towards the authoritarian protectionist way and, and there's a bit of a fight back on. And the Lib Dems are, are part of that.
2: And what was interesting, over the weekend we had another round of speculation about a snap election. which, fingers crossed, is not going to happen because we all sort of haven't recovered from last year. Um, But what was interesting is that the Conservative MPs, particularly in the South West, are far more concerned about the Lib Dems than they are concerned about the Labour Party anyway. I
4: think if the election doesn't happen, it'll be much more to do with the Lib Dem threat than the Labour threat. Um, And, you know... Theresa May knows that she was targeted for the, as part of the decapitation as part of their decapitation strategy and made a head at one point. So she's had a sort of quite vigorous Lib Dem threat locally, um, and and they they, they went solo at the last election. Things can only get better if you like for the Lib Dems, but for the Tories, obviously that would then change the balance of power in Parliament to give you know give some more unambiguously pro-European, anti-Brexit MPs, and that would be quite dangerous. For treason, I
2: thought it was struck when Nick Clegg was asked about a snap election. He said, Well, we can't do any worse than last time, so we'd welcome well, exactly. it, you know, bring it on basically. Yeah. Giles, what do you think? Are the Lib Dems a serious electoral
3: force? I think so. And by the way, it's fashionable to ridicule Farron um, as a non-plausible leader. I think, and if I can be very cruel to him, that's more true on telly than on radio. <laughs> I, There is something a, a bit sort of young and vulnerable about him uh, in person. But I think when you just listen to what he says... Uh, if just supposing you were one of the forty-eight percent, right? It's all very plausible, and more than that, it's fighting. Right? There are a lot of people in the middle who've given up, and uh, they regard the referendum probably quite rightly as uh, the people have spoken. You've got to, if you're a democrat, you've got to respect the result. But there are others. Uh, Blair is one of them, but. Uh, Blair's time has gone, who who say, yes, uh, we're Democrats, therefore the job now is to change minds. And and he articulates that point of view quite well, I think.
4: And also, I think what's interesting is it's, they're going beyond Europe. So um, they're trying to position themselves as the party of the centre, sort of taking it, in, stepping into that gap if you like in the market that was been left by tony blair um and you got even in i thought it was interesting in the house of lords there are at least a dozen of the labor peers who are the sort of more moderate end of the party who now ask every week for the lib dem whips instructions because they feel they have more affinity with the lib dems than with labor under jeremy corbyn
2: do you think this would go as far as some defecting
4: i don't think well at the moment they're saying they don't want to defect but they want to sort of sit vote i mean with, with,
2: what about with mps
4: I don't know I don't, it, it doesn't feel it doesn't like, feel it, like, yeah, like yeah. it does it but what does feel like is they've given up on the idea of a new party Yeah. so for people who aren't MPs or peers I think you're getting quite a lot of defections among party members certainly anecdotally even in Jeremy Corbyn's constituency I'm told the Lib Dems have picked up quite a lot of new members um, so people who are really cross with the Labour line on Europe particularly but also more generally with the direction are switching so even if it doesn't happen at the parliamentary level it may happen at the kind of grass roots local membership level
2: grant are you on board with hashtag lib dem fight back um, <laughs> definitely not i think
5: this is all very fanciful um <laughs> <laughs> so, the social democrats worldview has been completely and utterly devastated over the last six to 12 months uh, and they're desperately trying to cling on to something and <laughs> they've managed to cling on to the the lib dem and tim Farron of all people uh tim Farron is is not a new tony blair at least i don't think so um <laughs> And if you look at the numbers, where were the Lib Dem strongholds? It was the South West. They voted overwhelmingly uh, to leave and they are of Eurosceptic nature. So I find it very hard how they're going to win back seats there. But also Theresa May is very popular with Tory voters. The people that should be scared of the Lib Dems are Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. I think in their areas, I don't think Theresa May has got anything to worry about by the Lib Dems. She's popular with her voters. It's the
2: Labour Party and Labour MPs who should be worried about the Lib Dems. It's interesting, we've got this by-election in Manchester Gorton, where Sir Joel Kaufman was the MP. And although he had something like a 24,000 majority, there's a lot of talk that the Lib Dems think they're in with a... They're definitely going to throw the kitchen sink in it like they did in Richmond. And now we've got the news that George Galloway is standing there, which could potentially split the... Labour votes. and the Labour Party there
4: apparently is in special put into special measures. It's it's utterly chaotic. They haven't even selected a candidate. It's a kind of total bum fight. Um, and the the Lib Dems think it's at least a two horse race between Labour and the Lib Dems. And if Labour becomes too divided, George Galloway kind of splits the vote. It was a very pro Remain constituency in the uh, EU referendum uh, as quite a lot of students. So they're hoping they could pick up support there.
2: And Giles, if they managed to do that, that would be an extra, I mean, apart from the Lib Dems expanding by 25% in the House of Commons (laughs) uh, in the space of uh, two years, I mean, it would show that there was, that they were a serious political force.
3: Yes, and um, I'm not the expert on recent Lib Dem uh, parliamentary history, but when you're down in the uh, eight 2050 range, you can oscillate from one end of that spectrum to the other very easily in electoral cycles, and and a win in Gorton uh, would would uh, get their dander up. And um, I think Grant, your point about the southwest is right. They're an odd mixture of uh, quite strong Lib Dem base and quite strong Leave vote last year. But I still think that – I mean, I hear that uh, the Tory HQ is is nonetheless worried about uh, the yellow peril in in Wessex. Well, I – because I – before the 2010 election, I was the police coach for the Western
2: Morning News, so I know that patch well. I'm from Somerset. I think I was really struck in the run-up to the 2015 election. I thought if people didn't vote Tory in 2010 – why would they in 2015? <laughs> How wrong I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and the reason then was obviously Nicholas Sturgeon. I think the, the Nicholas Sturgeon pulling Ed Miliband's strings played massively down there because, you know, Labour were nowhere and the idea of the SNP and Labour in cahoots was sort of too much. And, you know, they didn't just fall to the Tories by a bit. They won stonking majorities in seats which previously had been really safely held for the Lib Dems. But I think... The lesson we should probably take from that isn't that that's now a safe tool we see, it's just that politics is really volatile, and what yeah. we've seen in the last 12 months sort of. Bears and Labour's
4: no longer a threat. Yeah. So the Lib Dems are, you know, could You could, be could be
2: that, safely could go back could to could the Lib Dems be, uh, and you could get a potentially maybe a coalition. That might be what people thought. Um, if we don't have a snap election this year, and it is
5: not till 2020 we get the next general election. I suspect that the public will be very bored of the liberal Ramona's carrying on and on and on. And by that point, we, we Europe would have been sorted, whether we like the deal or not. Something would have been implemented. I think this is a very short-term strategy, which will not last till the next general election.
2: But it, it, what's happened, isn't it, that the EU has just given? the Lib Dems an excuse to be heard. They are being heard. And then, like you say, Well, it's can, given
4: them an, a unique selling point Yes, and then they can expand. Um, and which they can then expand. Other areas. I mean, it depends whether or not at the next election Brexit is totally settled or whether the next election effectively becomes a referendum on the deal the Prime Minister's done, uh, which we don't quite yet know. Although the other factor that uh, somebody said to me that these, um, if there end up being by-elections as a result of these election... Expenses for Rory. The Lib Dems um, could be a threat in around eight of those seats, uh, of the sort of 20 or so seats that uh, Tory MPs are being investigated.
2: So they could double in size. So they could double wow. in size.
4: But, I mean, <laughs> Lib Dems are eternal optimists.
2: They are. Well, they've got to be. Uh, let's move on and uh, let's look at um, Theresa May in a glossy magazine.
4: Americans flicking
5: through the pages of the latest issue of Vogue will be confronted with some eye-catching photos of Theresa May, but after ploughing through 4,000 words of breathless prose, they won't be much the wiser about the Prime Minister, apart from her dislike of being compared to Thatcher and her love of watching the brutal murders of NCIS.
2: I ploughed through the 4,000 words so you don't have to. There wasn't an awful lot in. I mean, part, partly maybe it's because I obviously know more about the British Prime Minister than American readers of Vogue. But she didn't give very much away. And the journalist who did the interview, you could sort of feel the exasperation of her sort of saying, you know, how are things going? Being the sort of opening gambit. And it was all, you know, lot to do, lots of challenges. I
5: did feel a bit sorry for the interview because at the end she even writes. At- this is one of the dullest people I've ever met. was so basically what I got from that final paragraph. She couldn't get anything out of it. It was like blood out of a stone. So now they know what British journalists have felt like for the last six months
2: interviewing her on Brexit. Rachel, you've, you've interviewed her several times.
4: Yeah, she's only ever agreed to be interviewed on very specific subjects. So on an immig- we did an immigration investigation, we did an investigation into the police and it was very, very precise, narrow, controlled. She didn't want to stray at all into kind of general chit-chat or general politics. She's a very, very difficult person to interview.
2: Giles, do you think this stuff matters, Prime Ministers appearing in glossy magazines and trying to... You know, give us a peek behind the curtains of what they get up to of an evening?
3: Not really. I think what's really troubling uh, from uh Redbox coverage of this of, of this very, very significant cover story is <laughs> is is the possible retirement of the Vivian Westwood Tartan. <laughs> which I really liked. I thought those billowing flares um cut exactly the dash that she wanted to at Lancaster House. So Grant, how do you feel about the disappearance of the Tartan
5: suit? I'm devastated. It reminded me of the Bay City Rollers, but I wasn't alive at the time. So I've only seen pictures in, from my dad when he was a child. Um, what I liked about the interview as well was she's gone back to referring herself to in the third person. Yes. Which I'm not sure. Did she ever do that with you, Rachel? No. Uh, there can only be ever one Margaret Thatcher, she says. I'm Theresa May. I do things
2: my way. And I remember joining the Tory leadership contest last summer speaking to somebody in her team and a couple of quite senior Tory MPs have been to see her basically to say yes we'll support you but we want what are we going to get in return she said I don't do deals I'm Theresa May and you're going to support me (laughs) and obviously in the end thanks to Rachel's award winning interview with uh, Angela Edson uh, congratulations for that Um, uh, we never did did get to find out um, how much that was going to matter in the end because we didn't get the um, leadership contest does this this stuff matter do we need to know I mean part of I thought Theresa May's appeal was we didn't we didn't have all the sort of box set nin- playing fruit ninja nonsense that we had from David Cameron. Mm. It was just, I'm just a professional person getting on and doing the job. Why Why can, you know, even the Theresa May down the street not resist doing this sort of cuddly nonsense?
4: <laughs> I think people do want their prime minister to... They want to feel they understand their prime minister, and it, because they want to feel that their prime minister understands them, there has to be an emotional connection of some sort. It can't just be a sort of headmistress. This is what I'm going to tell you to do. People want to feel a sense of the humanity of the person who's in charge. Um,
2: and I think what's striking is her. She doesn't attempt to pander in the way that you know the David Cameron. Uh, but, you know, because he was so caught up on the idea that he was posh and wealthy and out of touch. Um, she's quite happy to pose in a coat, which is several hundred pounds or the £1,100 trousers, because that, you know, she doesn't see that there's a, there's a sort of political price to pay. So I suppose there's an authenticity there.
4: I think she's genuinely interested in clothes, actually, And well. Yes, and as actually, as well. Actually, I was striking, there is one of, the, quite- one of the
2: better quotes in it. If you... Got it there, Grant. Uh, it doesn't stop me from going out and enjoying
5: fashion. I also think it's important to be able to show that a woman can do a job like this and still be interested in
2: clothes. Mm. Yeah, and I think
4: that's... And she does still do her own shopping. So, you know, she, I think um, some prime ministers might have a sort of personal shopper go and bring them a range of clothes, but she likes to go to the stores. She'll come back to Downing Street with her bags from Bond Street <laughs> over her shoulder, slightly to the surprise of the policemen who have to accompany her, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, awkwardly
2: around the ladies' clothes Exactly. Shops, yeah in
4: the changing rooms um, but she does she she's interested in shoes or the and clothes one thing that i think is is quite fascinating is one of her friends said to me with the kitten heels she hadn't when she, the first time she wore those do you remember the leopard print kitten heels at the tory conference and they were on every front page she hadn't realized it was going to be a big deal but after that she decided that was going to be her brand that was going to be her token interesting thing that she did <laughs> and she she kind of decided to focus on it she is interested in clothes but she also did, knew she was she was aware that it was going to become her brand if you like and that was going to be her supposedly humanizing gesture but it's not really showing any vulnerability, is it? That no, it's it actually complete, has the it's opposite. A, the the it's cartoonists
2: a, do her pinning people
5: yeah, under a stiletto it's a heel. suit
4: of armour yeah. rather than a chink in the armour.
5: I think you're right. I think she really understands the power of clothes and power of image. And I think the reason she probably agreed to do this interview, apart from being a big fan of Vogue, which she is, it was a Desert Island Discs uh, takeaway, uh, is because it... Portrays an image of her. This, these photos, people laugh at them,
2: but I think they are quite iconic in a way. And one of the interesting things is that, particularly, there's always a lot of criticism of people commenting on, fe- particularly female politicians' appearance. But her attitude seems to be, I like clothes, and she's, you know, up, up to a point, quite happy for people to comment on it.
4: Yeah, no, I do think there's. I think it's there's a sort of sexist thing in the sense that people don't comment on what men are wearing. They do comment on what women are wearing. But I think what's quite interesting with Theresa May, she's she's taken that and controlled it. So she's turned it around, if you like. So she's no longer the victim of that situation. She's using the clothes to her advantage. Although it backfired, obviously, with the leather trousers where. But that was almost a sort of political blind spot where she hadn't realised... I'm not sure she thought through that they were very expensive, the leather trousers.
2: I think in the end it wasn't the price, it was the leather. There's something about... Because the £1,200 tartan trouser suit didn't, didn't attract the same sort of attention. There was just brown leather trousers seem a bit more out of the ordinary. Maybe that's um, yeah. Maybe that's what it was. She got attacked by her own side, of course, Nikki well, yeah, Morgan. Yeah, Nikki Morgan, exactly. But then that all became a sort of personal um, uh, thing. And I think actually... Plenty of people do comment on what Boris Johnson wears when he goes jogging or David Cameron's. It's true wardrobe full of dark oh, his, blue t-shirts his while towel pointing attempts at fish. to
4: change under a towel. Yes, his
2: towel and all of that. So mm. I think increasingly, you know, we're, we're bringing equality to passing judgement on how people... Um, on, um.
4: Glad to hear it.
2: <laughs> uh, right, well, I think that's all we've got um, time for this week. As ever, do sign up to my morning email briefing at uk forward slash redbox. And if you get a chance, go on to uh, iTunes where you can leave us a review, which will help us go up the charts. And if you want to vote for us in the British Podcast Awards, go to britishpodcastawards.com. Search for Times Red Box and uh, hopefully thousands and thousands of you uh, will vote for us. Um, and We might even become an award winning podcast, although uh, don't hold your breath. But for now, uh, from Grant Tucker, Rachel Sylvester, Giles Wattel and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
3: Thank you for downloading. To discover more head to thetimes.co.uk